Hi everyone, Boris here. Sorry for the quick interruption, but I have to tell you about some exciting new job openings that are added to the LogTechies job board. Have you heard of the LogTechies job board? LogTechies is the first hand-curated job board for the field of logistics technology. That's where I post the coolest LogTech jobs at those companies that I currently find the most interesting. Brand new to the board is Bex Technologies from Stuttgart, Germany. Bex is building a logistics platform for the construction industry that helps companies coordinate deliveries to construction sites. I've had CEO and co-founder Leonard Paul on the podcast before, and I know they're going places. Right now, they're hiring for a number of exciting roles, including a CFO, COO, and a head of logistics. Alaiko from Munich, Germany is another new addition to the LogTechies job board. Alaiko offers seamless e-commerce fulfillment for fast-rising online shops and e-commerce brands. The company raised $30 million in a Series A round earlier this year and is now on an ambitious growth trajectory. They are looking to fill a number of sales roles, for example, for junior as well as for seasoned professionals. You should definitely take a look at Alaiko's openings. Aside from Bex Technologies and Alaiko, you will also find exciting roles from TradeLink, Noise Technologies, FanRide, Sender and others. Please have a look and follow the board so you can stay updated on when new companies and jobs get added. You find the LogTechies job board at LogTechies.com. L-O-G-T-E-C-H-I-E-S.com. LogTechies.com. All right, and now let's start the show. Hello and welcome to the Logistics Tribe. I'm your host, Boris Felgendreer, and my guest today is Eric Johnson. Eric is Senior Editor of Technology at JOC, the Journal of Commerce. He's a highly respected journalist who has been covering the fields of logistics and supply chain for most of his career. He also understands the space of LogTech especially well, and that's why I asked him to come onto the show today to share with us the logistics technologies and startups that he's particularly interested in or excited about. This turned into a wide-ranging conversation about LogTech and startups, past, present and future. I really enjoyed this conversation and I hope you will too. Let's go. Eric, welcome to the Logistics Tribe podcast. Thanks for being on the program, man. Oh, I appreciate it, Boris. Thanks for inviting me. Eric, um, we were just chatting before this call and we're trying to recollect when our path first crossed a few years ago when you were still at American Shipper, right? And I was at GT Nexus. We probably crossed path a few times. Uh, so you've been in the business for quite a long time. You're now the senior editor for technology at JOC, right? The Journal of, Journal of Commerce, that venerable old publication. And I just Googled it and I realized it's founded in 1827. So it's almost 200 years old. That's ridiculous. <laughs> you're, you're older than the New York Times. I had no idea. <laughs> it's, uh, it's like the exact opposite of a startup business at this point. So it, interesting, interesting bit of trivia around the JOC um, is it was founded by Samuel Morse, who obviously invented the Morse code as well. So, oh, wow. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, huh. it's, it's actually pretty incredible to be at an at a organization that has so much history and is so intertwined with kind of global trade and commerce yeah. uh, around the world for so long, but is still kind of kept itself relevant throughout the years. Yeah, that's no, that's no easy feat, right? I mean, a lot of trade publications have gone under, media is under, under attack and in commotion and in change for, for a number of years now. So American Shipper, the, the publication you spend a number of years at, that, that has also been acquired, right? After you left? I believe I I left in uh, early 2018 after about uh, almost 13 years there, um, and uh, and yeah, they were acquired the following year. I think about about a year and a half after I left yeah. uh, by Freightways. Yeah, lots yeah. of consolidation happening. Yeah. 
There is, yeah. So you, you're a you're a journalist by trade. You've done nothing else but but journalism in your life, right? And your in your professional career, let's say. How did you um how how did the passion for for journalism develop? And was there a passion for logistics, or did you just sort of stumble into it? Uh, no, very like I think a lot of people uh stumbled into it <laughs> purely by accident. So. Uh, yeah, I, I, I guess I realized, well, I originally wanted to be a professional basketball player, uh, when I was a kid <laughs> uh -huh. and, uh, stopped growing at a certain age, <laughs> uh, -huh. uh, and realized that was going to be, I, I was pretty pragmatic early on. So I, I realized that was, you know, I was, the, the chances were slim, uh, to none. Mm. And so I thought, well, what can I do to get, to be close to that game? And I, I said, well, I could be a reporter. I'm pretty good at writing. Uh -huh. I could be, you know, and I could be attached to the game that way. And so I took a, I took a liking to, uh, writing and reporting fairly early. I got into it in high school a little bit. I wasn't like editor of the student newspaper or anything, but I, you know, I, it, it came naturally and, and then, you know, kind of chose a, a university to go to that was, that was very strong in journalism thinking that would be my path. And, and I liked it. It, it actually, it gave me a chance to really, um, study a wide range of, of topics because when you're a journalism major, like you don't need, you don't need to learn physics and math and all these things and layer your knowledge in one, you know, tight vertical. You're actually encouraged to go learn about politics and yeah. space and science yeah. and you Become know, social studies and, of, of sorts. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. Renaissance person <laughs> yeah. you're supposed to be. Right. So, um, so that was, I really enjoyed that and, and yeah, just got a job, covering really boring city sort of administrative stuff mm. in a very small town in Southern California where I near where I grew up and and that was my grounding and then uh went to the UK because I always wanted to study abroad and and uh wanted to get a bit of business background because I was finding the, the stories I was most interested in were business related but I had no grounding in business so got a master's degree and when I came back The opening at a newspaper in Southern California, the only opening on the business desk was covering the ports of LA and Long Beach. <laughs> Nobody so else wanted to do that. Just by chance. Well, it, I, the person who the person who had that role left for oh, a, I a, I, actually I think he left for a job with the port of Long Beach, uh -huh. and so there was an opening at this time that I was looking for a job, and uh, I said, "Sure, that sounds interesting." Not knowing, you know, that one like little thing would define the next 20 years of my life. Yeah. So that, I mean, that was literally, that was 2003. So, um, going on two decades. So yeah, been, and then, and then, yeah, got, uh, got an opportunity to join American shipper a couple years later, um, uh, just based on a recommendation that the port actually made mm -hmm. the, uh, they were looking for someone on the West coast to cover, Uh, container shipping and and uh, yeah, the rest is kind of history. And then then you you slowly devolve or evolved and and moved into the technology space. And I now and I, I consider you one of the recognized voices in the space of LockTech. I mean, that's something that you've made yourself a name for. I, I come across a lot of people who think very highly of you, so that's why you're on the program today because I want to talk to you about LockTech and all of the stuff that's happening there, especially in the startup sphere. And I ask you to to come prepared with a couple of or a handful of interesting, intriguing startups that you know of globally, 
uh, that people may have heard of or maybe some examples that people haven't heard of that are just interesting and intriguing and that you think are, are, are worth mentioning. And let's go through those. And, you know, that's, sure. that's also an area of my, my interest. Um, I've worked with a lot of startups in my, in my life and for LogTech in particular. So that's sort of also up my alley. So it should be a, a great conversation, hopefully. <laughs> Del delighted to talk. I mean, I literally, I live to my wife and kids' chagrin. I, I, I think about this stuff far too much. So I'm more than happy to... Uh, yeah. <laughs> To dive into this, let's, yeah. Let's jump in. You you brought a list of interesting, intriguing startups and in the tech. Let's talk about those and the technology that enables it, and why you think those are noteworthy to our audience. Sure. Um, yeah. Well, I'll I'll start off with one that maybe not um, kind of on everyone's radar, um, and partially because they're not they're not really an independent company anymore. There's a there's a company called uh, INLT or Inlet. Um, I guess depending on whether you, how you want to pronounce it, they. Uh, sort of emerged in 2018 and uh, were actually acquired by Amazon, again, very under the radar in 2019. I think it was around uh, late summer 2019. Wow. What Inlet did and still does within Amazon is uh, they are sort of a digital customs brokerage. Um, so really niche, mm -hmm. uh, very specialized, um, especially on U.S. imports. It's, I mean, they're not even like a global yeah. customs broker, right? So why is that interesting? Well, A, um, they sort of came up in the wake of, you know, digital fill-in-the-blank, you know, models mm -hmm. uh, that had come up, you know, throughout the last decade, um, whether it be digital forward or digital broker. Um, so I, I found it interesting that, A, there, was, that there were more of these niches that were being filled uh, – by kind of digital variants to the incumbents that were out there. And there's obviously mm -hmm. thousands of customs brokers out there. But then when they got bought by Amazon, I found, okay, well, I'm not the only one who thinks they have kind of an interesting view of things or an interesting model, right? Obviously, there's people with a lot more skin in the game that, yeah. that think what they're doing is pretty Just interesting. Just understand. So you, you thought they were a big deal or you, you thought they were interesting before they got acquired? Before. Before, yeah. yeah. In okay. fact, I had I had, I had their one of their co-founders speaking at our LogTech uh, event in uh, September of, no, this would have been October of 2018 at our very first LogTech conference at JOC. I had, I had someone from uh, them and, and not even sure I had covered them at all, but they were always on my radar. And then all of a sudden I got a message that summer saying, hey, by the way, I can't, we can't go, we can't say anything public about this, but this is what uh. is going to be happening. So it was... Really interesting, and and I think what's interesting about it is um, that the 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 sort of proliferation of of models of traditional structures in the logistics industry that are now kind of being rebuilt or recast on modern tech stacks, basically, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know. And again, they they weren't the first one to think about, the, but they were sort of one of the originators of that of applying that to the customs brokerage space, which is. You know, it's a niche, but it's a pretty, you know, it's a pretty decent margin niche for companies that, that do it well. And yeah. so is this is this going to kind of change um, that whole industry? And is Amazon using it going to kind of help change that industry that much further or accelerate the change of that industry? Yeah. So that that's why that, that one has always been an interesting one for me to kind of think back to. 
that company. Yeah, that's an interesting story that Amazon would buy would buy a startup that's just over just over a year old, right? That's that's sort of a very uncommon move. I mean, they don't do that many acquisitions. They develop a lot of stuff in house, or they had a, high, a few high profile acquisitions like the the Kiva systems, like the the robots, right? Right. But not so much this this right. little small. How many people were there? 10, 15, 20 people at that time. <laughs> uh, it probably wasn't even that many. Yeah. It was, I, I mean, I don't, I don't know the exact number, but I would be surprised if it was, if it was much over ten. Yeah, and honestly, and where do you find that? that point, where so. do you find that technology inside of Amazon now? How do they use it? Is it part of the Amazon fulfillment uh, network? How do they employ it? It's part. It's so it's part of this. Uh, as I understand it, there's Amazon Global Logistics. And then there's uh, another um, there's another entity within Amazon that I'm spacing on the name on. I should have come prepared to talk about this, <laughs> okay. but it's it's something like Amazon Last Mile or Final Mile. It's it's sort of this basket of services that it seems like they're building around um, you know kind of cross border sellers that are on their platform and giving them access to kind of manage some of some more logistics elements than just kind of pushing it through a, an FBA warehouse that an, that a customs broker or logistics yeah. company yeah. would normally manage. So yeah. really interesting. I mean, you have to, you, you have to go in. I mean, I, there's a reason why I wanted to start it, start with an Amazon adjacent or, you know, company because every single thing that I write about and talk about, you have to like sort of at least be thinking in the background about what Amazon <laughs> is doing yeah. on it because they, they're just that, they're just that ubiquitous. And, yeah. In, in in our space now, so yeah, and even more so after the pandemic. I mean, they've grown leaps and bounds. Right. Also here in Germany, I mean, they they That's have right. warehouses going up everywhere, and it's just becoming all ubiquitous. And the delivery service showing up here at the doorsteps and so forth, all over the place. That's right. Yeah, it's a good one. Interesting, interesting find. What next? What's uh, what's the next one you want to present? The next one is a company called Bico, which is a, uh, a, a still a relatively small startup. I don't think they've taken much uh, venture funding, if if any at all, at this point. Um, they are uh, they're based in Marseille, France, mm-hmm. so not your traditional, you know, not exactly Silicon Valley. Uh, when people think about, do you about, see a connection there between them not having much venture funding and them being based in Marseille, not in the Valley? Probably. Well, I think so. I mean, yeah, and 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 actually, that's one of the reasons why I wanted to highlight mm-hmm. Bico is so they are they're basically a TMS provider. So you could say that you know you obviously had a background at, at GT Nexus and and now InfoNexus. Um, you could say that they are a uh, you know somewhat of a, a modern competitor for GT Nexus um, uh, or InfoNexus. Um, they are designed to be uh, purely browser-based, really easy to implement, relatively you know low cost um, to to implement, and yet they're targeting big shippers. They're not going after hmm. kind of like Instagram, you know, direct to direct to consumer sellers. They're going after big, you know, kind of food and and energy shippers and right. and so that you know they have big targets. What's what's interesting to me is. A, they're kind of again tackling a space that is not, you know, they're they're not landing on the moon and planting a flag on an empty, yeah. uh, you know, an empty kind of landscape. There are other vendors out there uh, with a lot of brand equity, a lot of reputational equity, a lot of history, mm-hmm. and uh, but they're they've come in with this approach that like we can do things in a more modern way mm-hmm. than than even incumbents that came up twenty years ago can. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other interesting thing for me is. It, they are a symbol to me of the proliferation of, of logistics technology around the world. Sure. You know, if you think, you know, 
to, to bring up, you know, back to your, your uh, history at, at GT Nexus, GT Nexus came up in, in the Bay Area, right? Yeah. We, we traditionally think of technology innovation being, you know, kind of confined to certain areas, sure. right? Mm-hmm. And especially in North America. And, and here's a company that came up in the shadow of CMA CGM. Mm-hmm. Uh, their office is not far away from CMA CGM's yeah. huge headquarters in Marseille. Um, and, and they, they have, you know, uh, obviously connections there, uh, some of their the early employees, but it's a sign to me that you have this proliferation of technology around the world. It's happening in Asia, South America. I talked to founders r- literally in every continent, um, because logistics tech is not bound by where the capital exactly is anymore. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, the, these guys are founders who had experience in the logistics industry and had to, and have to sell their capability and their expertise to a market mm-hmm. that wants to see that they're not selling it to investors who want, who think that, you know, something can scale a hundred times in, in two years. Yeah. yeah. And I, I was um, joking saying earlier that they, that there's a connection between them not having venture funding and being in Marseille. I think there's a lot of change happening in Europe in general, especially in Germany. We've seen mm-hmm. a real, a, a gigantic influx of venture capital into the log tech space. You probably uh, followed yeah. companies like Sender, for example. They now have a yeah, of a course, unicorn, covered them a lot. Unicorn yeah. now, yeah. I mean, incredible. I had the, the one of the founders, um, David Notaka, in the BVL Digital podcast a couple of times. Super interesting guy. Super interesting. I've, I've talked to him. He's he yeah uh, he's he's one of those guys who you feel smarter after you've talked to him for thirty yeah, minutes. Yeah, and also so. just very very likable, very humble, no no sense of arrogance, really really on a mission. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I think we need a a big German based unicorn to jumpstart the entire sort of log tech ecosystem. It's always it's already on its way, but I think one big exit, for example, and you know young founders flush with money, investing it, reinvesting it into the system would be great. I I think I. I I'm really interested in this topic because I think so much of the attention and so much of the capital has been focused on North America. I've been trying my best to, you know, kind of tap into what's going on in Asia, you know, whether it's India mm-hmm. or Singapore mm-hmm. or Hong Kong and Europe, especially. I, I'm definitely noticing the, the size of rounds going up in Europe. It's still not. I mean, if you take an equivalent company in Europe and North America, you're still likely to get a lot more money sure. at an earlier stage yeah. in North America because the, the the European market seems much more pragmatic around that. But it's it's changing. I think they're, they're starting to see. And, and yeah, I agree. We're now starting to see second generation, even third generation kind of founders emerge yeah. from those early log tech um, startups around the world. So yeah, really interesting. Yeah, this may be a good, good, good point in time to, to ping you on how you actually stay smart and keep track and stay close to these new technologies and these new startups showing up all over the world. I mean, what's a, let's say I'm a startup founder, I have a, a cool log tag. What's a, what's a good way to, to show up on your radar? I mean, because ultimately, you know, there's an interest of, of young startups to get some awareness, to get covered by the trade press. I mean, that's still a premium on that. Sure. What's a good way for both sides? I mean, for you and for startups to get together in, in, in some way and, um, and show up on your radar? That's a good question. I, I, you know, my job is to like know as much of this landscape as possible on a, on a, across, you know, across virtually every logistics freight mode, uh, and every geography. Mm -hmm. Um, obviously there's only one of me. (laughs) I, 
I, I can right. My bandwidth is uh, maxes out at a certain point, but I, I I really try to at least meet with everybody that I come across um, at some point, if not have multiple engagements with them. So, I mean, honestly, the best way is engage with me on social. Mm-hmm. I'm on LinkedIn and Twitter far too much. <laughs> Uh, so that's always a good way to follow me. Uh, at LogTech, Eric is my Twitter handle, and Eric Johnson, yeah. you can find me on uh, on LinkedIn easily. I post a lot. I have a Substack newsletter that I put out once a, once that's a week. That's actually a very good one. I, uh, uh, I'm a subscriber. I can highly call. recommend it. Yeah, good good stuff. Yeah, so that's that's a good way. You know, there's I, I do a lot of these podcasts too because um, I feel like it's a good way to explore my areas of interest with markets that may not be familiar with me as well. Mm-hmm. So that, you know, hopefully, hopefully our conversation will, will let people know kind of that I'm interested in their, in their, you know, kind of sweet spot area and, and reach out. Yeah. Email is, email is always a good way too. I'm happy to respond to good old fashioned email yeah, as good. well. So awesome. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's also not, not a given or not self understood because I also came across a lot of journalists in my, in my, in my career that wanted to keep a distance, wanted to remain objective and not uh, not be seen as taking sides. Yeah. So it would, you know, there's probably yeah. still a fair number of journalists out there who wouldn't come on a podcast and talk about the five startups that they find interesting for fear of, of sounding biased or sounding sort of, yeah, non-objective, right? That, that's a good point. And I probably should have prefaced saying this, that I, you know, I, I have no, I have no sort of like skin in the game with any of these companies in terms of whether they ultimately succeed or no not. No secret investor in Bicol. I, I'm not, definitely not, definitely not. I'm just, I, what, what, I, what I wanted to do was kind of think through a list that I find kind of stretches my brain yeah, in different ways and, and put that, yeah, because you're right. It's, there is a lot, it's, it can be a little insidious and it can be, I think about it a lot, but I also realize that readers of, kind of trade publications or B2B, you know, kind of insights like we hopefully put out at the GOC, they might have an innate feeling that, you know, what we're doing is for a, a specific reason. Right. Um, and, and really my only, my only reason for writing what I write is to increase the education and awareness of the industry at large. So, I mean, I write about such a wide variety of companies, sometimes companies that are directly competitive with one another. I, I literally have no, uh, you know, interest in which ones succeed or not. It's like, I, I, it's just my role to help people understand the landscape and, uh, decide for themselves, which ones are, are, you know, have value or not. Right. Yeah. So it's, it's, I don't do, I, I'm not into vendor guide selections and, and, and that sort of thing. It's really, you need to decide for yourself. And, and I write to helpfully elevate people's awareness of what's going on. That's great. And that's what um, so, the market needs that too. I think the market needs that sort of a, 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 a someone that gives advice that comes from long years of experience and a dedication to that space and really understands it at a, at a deeper level, not just on artificial level. And it doesn't, doesn't have a hidden agenda or motive or sort of skin in the game. That's, that, that's not obvious to the, to the outside, yeah. outside world. We don't, we don't, <laughs> We don't. We do not do pay for play at JOC. It's like we we have complete editorial independence. Well, that's that's why you're around for 200 years. Otherwise, you would have gone under. That's, that would have been my prediction. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. right. That's exactly yeah. right. Yep. All right. Yep. So we'll, after a little detour, let's uh, move move back to a list. So Bico, any anything else to add sure. there, or were you? No, 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 no. I let, so the, I think the next area, rather than a single company, is I'm going to sort of talk about a, a a category that I see really sort of 
making a lot of traction in the space um, last year and especially into this year is sort of this process automation or RPA, yeah. um, which is a very kind of like up until recently has been a pretty technical term that most people in logistics didn't really have to con- you know concern themselves with, but I think is becoming a much bigger factor mm-hmm. as opposed to blockchain, as opposed to um, you know, IOT, which are, you know, things that I think have value in, in, in very, you know, specific use cases, but are, are also major projects. The, the, the ROI on them is not necessarily as clearly definable. Um, process automation, I think is, is a, it's, it's much easier to sort of, uh, adopt as an organization and the ROI is pretty clearly defined in most of these. Yeah. Cases. So there's a whole bunch of companies that have developed various use cases for RPA. RPA there's one called RPA Labs, mm-hmm. which is you don't have to go too far on the brand on that. Um, Shipamax. Uh, there's a company called Slink yep. that's gotten actually a f- decent amount of funding. Yep. Um, and uh, and uh, there's a few others. Vector uh, is another one that comes to mind. Uh, Koi Reader is another one that comes to mind. All of them have slightly different approaches, focus on slightly different areas of, of the business. But the idea is if, if there's a process that is repeatable, that doesn't vary very, uh, all that much, should a system should be doing that rather than a person? So data entry, responding to basic customer service requests, responding to a, a, a request for quote. Yeah. Those types and, of and, things. And logistics so. is ripe with these types of processes, right? Reoccurring, always sort of Absolutely. mechanical, sort of somebody has to open like some file, copy something out of something and paste it into something. Take data from one system right. and put it into another system yeah. over and over and over. Yeah, yeah, and what all of those vendors that you just described have in common is that they're specialized or are focusing on logistics and supply chain, right? As opposed to the large ones of the industry. That's Let's right. think about the Salonis and the UiPath as sort of the big That's daddies. Right. They can also do that. I think they also work with work in supply chain, work in logistics, but there is now a space where these specialized vendors like those come into play that really look at the different processes inside of supply chains. And my guess would be that they hire a lot of people from from the space or are originally from that space, so they're intimately familiar with the different processes that can be automated. For example, um, I I had a a guy from from Slink on the program, and if I remember correctly, he was previously at Kuno Nagel and did RPA there. So (laughs) they brought him over, and now he's, um, he's at Slink. Yeah, good, good, good company. I yeah, know no, a couple of folks the, over there actually. The, yeah. Well, and and John Urban is is an advisor, advisor there, right? Yeah. So there's a there's a connection and and uh, f- from his time at uh, at GT Nexus. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, there is a lot of potential there. Uh, and you're right. Um, I I sort of compare it to the procurement space. Not that they're directly related. I mean, there actually is some automation going on in the procurement space as well, the logistics procurement space. Mm-hmm. But you have. You, you know, in the last, you know, 15 years, you had a bunch of logistics or supply chain specific procurement software come up trying to compete with general procurement software. And, the, and their selling right. point was, no, we have the fields configured and we speak your language from day one and you're going to have to do some yeah. customization right, right, right. with this general purpose. And the same thing with these sort of RPA companies is they walk in and they go, you don't need to explain to us what, uh, you know, uh, an o- the difference between an ocean quote and an LTL quote. We're, we don't need to add any fields for that. We, we know the business and we can walk in from day one with kind of either a template or, you know, an easy kind of uh, custom customizable thing for you to, to implement. Yeah. How do you think about the fact that some of these sort of processes seem like something that's more like a 
like a stopgap or a workaround for a process that's not, or like a system that hasn't been invented yet. It looks like something that would work just in the meantime until something better shows up, right? Is that a right sentiment or am I totally off, off, off the track there? Uh, I don't know. I, you know, I think a lot of people have theorized that, you know, that the, you know, kind of supply chains will become more autonomous, right. which kind of negates the need to have, you know, some of these, uh, I think what you're getting at is a lot of the RPA solutions feel like they're automating a process that humans did rather than like rethinking the entire process. Mm -hmm. if, if I'm understanding yeah, your question correctly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So <clears throat> I would say yes, but the problem is most companies, I actually just did a story about this. That's, that's coming out. Uh, it may be out by the time the podcast is out, but a lot of companies I think theorize about, rewriting their entire supply chain from, you know, from procurement of raw material to delivery to final customer. But in reality, ripping that all out sure. at one go is like completely unworkable. It's just, yeah, I mean, sure. it would be suicide to do it. Right. So, um, what you end up with is these sort of incremental changes. Mm -hmm. And, and I just think that's much more realistic. And so maybe 10 years from now, we'll look back and say, yeah, that RPA was a in that particular instance was a stopgap rather than changing it forever and ever. Um, but in the meantime, it's still huge progress to go from having a, a full FTE doing data entry to maybe them having doing something more valuable than, than just looking at one screen and taking a, you know, a container milestone and putting it into another screen. And, you know, so it's, yeah. it, I think that's really big progress in, in the short term. Yeah. And the other thing that, that often gets overlooked is that whenever a person does something manually, there's no, no record of it. There's no, there's no data being generated, but if you right. do it with RPA, all of a sudden this, all this stuff becomes visible and you can then look at the process and say, Oh, wait a second, this yeah. takes way too long or this is way too complicated, or we can skip these steps or whatever and, and refashion the entire, entire process from, from that point. Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah, the analytics get so much better. So, yeah. because it's ever it's all structured in the in the way that you want it structured to look at at the end. So, and that's that's a great point. I think there has been this huge focus in supply chains at at large about thinking about the customer and working backwards, so kind of changing it from a supply chain to a demand chain. Mm -hmm. From a technology perspective, I think companies need to think about the same thing. They need to think what do they want the end to look like basically mm -hmm. and work backward from there instead of just saying, "Well, here's how it works. Let's change XYZ." and hope it turns out different. Yeah. So I think there's sort of a parallel there. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. P process automation. That's a, that was another good one. What's uh, what's next on your list? The next focus area. So now, now we'll probably get into some more of the like household names in the, of the last decade. Uh, visibility, um, mm -hmm. again, overlapping nicely with this feels like it's a, it's a GT <laughs> Nexus, uh, you know, where this is your life kind yeah, of, uh, stuck recap, in time, but, yeah. Groundhog uh, day. Yeah, no, but, <laughs> Well, it is ground. I mean, visibility is one. I, I joke that I'm going to be writing about visibility, you know, 50 years from now, right? As if it's yeah. still the thing that's to be solved, right? And, and it's still, there's still so much, so many puzzle pieces still to be assembled. But, you know, we've just seen a lot of activity. Uh, Project 44 just bought Ocean Insights. Mm -hmm. um, both Project 44 and Four Kites just got big funding rounds, um, $100 million each. Uh, to kind of keep building out their their vision for this, uh, there's other you know there's other competitors in various geographies that you know are not ready to give up the fight. And no, let's let's yeah, let's throw Shipio into the mix. Shipio from France, right? Shipio, absolutely. Shipio on the on. I mean, they're sixfold, which got acquired by Transporion. 
there is uh, Wakeo, which is another small, small at this point, uh, visibility provider in France. Uh, there's lots, right, in yeah. each geography. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, so it's yeah. I, I mean, I think we can expect to see more consolidation. I think the 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 need for shippers to have that multimodal picture is has always been there, but now it, it feels like we're closer to assembling a little bit more of that, just because the the individual companies that address it are more sophisticated, and the technologies to connect, you know, different companies is more sophisticated. Um, it feels like we're getting closer, but it may, you know, the, the, the dynamics and the demands may completely change in five years and it may feel like we're, we're always, it's always just out of reach. Yeah. So, so for the casual observer of the space that is not intimately involved in how visibility was supposed to be solved or was tried to be solved in the past. And now with these new players like project 44 and four kites, what is it that they do fundamentally different that wasn't, hasn't been done in the past in layman's terms, <laughs> if there's such thing? Well, I don't know if they've done so. The, both of their origins started in connecting trucks uh, in North America, mm -hmm. right? They both that's both where they started and and built up um, kind of growth and momentum for their business and got VC funding to to expedite that growth. And that's so, that's where Shipio started too um, in the trucking space. Yeah, yeah, and, exactly, yeah. exactly. So uh, you know, I, I boil this down. I always think of. A technology needs to be needs to be good at one of three things, and it, it probably needs to be decent at all three. But it needs to really be good at either connectivity, mm -hmm. so connectivity to assets, to partners. I mean, GT Nexus again was was great at that. Um, it needs to be uh, a source that either provides data or pipes in data mm -hmm. effect efficiently, or it needs to be amazing at optimization. Right, it needs to be a puzzle, a puzzle solving mm -hmm. system. And uh, I again, ideally, you're good at all three of those things, but you're excellent at at least one, or else you probably are not going to, you know, find your way in the market. So I think what these two companies have done really well is is the connectivity piece. They started off with that, and I think now they're starting to exp expand and explore uh, or spread their wings on the other elements, especially the optimization stuff, the predictive stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, so, and, and, you know, they have the advantage of, of coming up in an era where APIs are, are more prevalent, yeah. prevalent and the industry is understands that what they are and, and can kind of maybe wean itself off VDI in certain cases and other file formats. And, yeah. and, um, so, the, I mean, they just sort of have the advantage of, of being, of coming around 10, 15 years later when the, when the, the soil had been kind of prepared yeah. for them to, you know, plant their, plant their, their crops and grow. Right? Yeah, we, we so had to do all the dirty work since 2009 to get. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> that's even, right. Even well, even that, before. Yeah. Even before that, yeah. Even before. Yeah. I mean, from the dot-com boom, right? Yeah. Like a lot of the groundwork for what's going on now was laid at the start of the internet era, right? I mean, the, all these companies that have come up, they're basically based on the network effects of, of that are possible through the internet. I mean, if we're going to boil it down to the, the bare essence of this, yeah. like the, the internet is, is still the driver of all of these great softwares as much as AI and machine learning yeah. and, or, or and cloud to say another way. That the reason I said 2000, cloud, yeah. the reason I said 2009 is because that's when we started using the term cloud and it was sort of controversial right. whether we want to use it or not because it came with so that's much right. baggage. Yeah. I think we've, we've, um, we're past we're that now. Past that now. Yeah. Now yeah. it's, now it's, if you're not cloud-based, you're sort of seen as, as being, 
you know, a, a bigger risk. I hope so. Yeah. yeah. So <laughs> yeah. that's a good one. All right. Next, ne- next one up is more of a theme or a topic of yours, right? Not, not so much a, a technology that you want to push, but the, the whole topic around uh, digital freight forwarders is one of your recurring so, themes. Yeah. It's hard to have a conversation about the last 10 years without mentioning Flexport. And I, and yeah. I only say that because, I mean, they don't, they don't necessarily need any more uh, prominence in the industry. They, they get written about a lot. They do a lot of their own promotion. Um, their, their CEO does a ton of podcasts. So uh, I won't go into like who they are, what they are, but it's undoubtedly that they are a reference point for the rest of the industry. Mm-hmm. So that means they are used sometimes in the same basket of companies as Amazon as, well, we need to build XYZ because Flexport is doing this mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. Flexport is saying that they are this. And so they're, we need to explain that we also do this um, from a fundraising perspective I can't imagine there's many conversations with VCs that don't start or at some point come to, well, how are you guys different to Flexport or do you compete with Flexport, right? That, uh-huh. that conversation happens a lot uh-huh. unless, it's a, unless it's a logistics or supply chain specific VC at this point. Uh-huh. Um, so they are, they are a, a undoubtedly a reference point for the industry at this point, uh-huh. for better or for worse. Um, but what's interesting to me is I think the, the, the thesis around Flexport was – they were going to kind of fundamentally change the way intermediaries operated and the way the industry looked at intermediaries. Um, and the thought was, okay, well, they're going to get so big uh, that they're going to, or, or they're going to force kind of the, the big operators to change so much that we're going to, we're going to have a big consolidation effect and we're going to see power kind of concentrate into the hands of fewer maybe similar to like the ocean carrier industry. Mm. What's actually happened is the opposite. You've seen a sort of reverberation of funding go into technologies that help empower Flexport's competitors mm. and Cunanagle's competitors. Yeah, you point. have, mm. it's, you have, mo- I would say you have more competition now and not less because A, you have a bunch of technologies that can get in the hands of a small to mid-sized forwarder that doesn't necessarily have a huge budget, but can, put together a pretty decent website and dashboards and analytics mm-hmm. that they weren't thinking about five to 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, you have a whole crop of new digital forwarders that sort of copied some aspect of the Flexport model or just did it, you know, in a different geographies. You have forwarding alliances in every region that are based not around, you know, having a, a Rolodex of agents that you can connect with in different mm-hmm. regions, but they're actually based around kind of having a franchise set of technologies or a marketplace that their members can access. So it's, it's, it's had the total opposite effect of mm-hmm. that. I think the original thesis probably that went into their funding, you know, theorized uh, doesn't mean that they won't ultimately be an Uber unicorn. I don't mean Uber, the taxi company, but just like a big, the German Uber, not, yeah. not the taxi Uber. Yeah. I mean, they could still, they could still fulfill the promise as their investors see mm-hmm. it while this other stuff happens. But I think it just has highlighted how fragmented the industry is. And now we haven't solved the fragmentation problem, even if it is a problem. We've just moved to a different form of fragmentation. And you were earlier saying that they upped the ante on a, on a couple of major things that advanced the industry and sort of woke people up. What are some concrete examples of where they really sort of upped the ante, so to speak? A couple of examples of capabilities that they brought to the industry? Yeah, I would say the, the first 
and foremost is they, I mean, this seems sort of superficial in a certain way, but the, the, the fact that they sort of took a user interface first approach to everything they did, um, was quite revolutionary because I, you know, and you obviously have dealt with forwarders, uh, you know, at, at various points in your career, they tended to concentrate their investment internally, you know, operationally, right? That's sure. their tech investment was not, we're not going to have a fancy website where everything is going to be self-service. We're going to be as good as we can, uh, you know, behind the scenes and, and present the service to our customers in an offline manner. Right. Yeah. Um, they changed that picture in a relatively short period of time. And now there's an expectation that it, you know, you have to serve customers however they want to be served. And that also includes, having digital capability, whether it's a, you know, a map that you mm-hmm. need to have, that's really cool, mm-hmm. whether it's predictive ETAs, whether it's analytics dashboards that config, they're configurable based on what you care about as a shipper. Um, not all shippers need that or want that right now, but you have to have that capability or you're, or you're going to miss out on a group of customers that are going to say, well, Flexport is giving me that. Yeah. Yeah. And even just to, to refer back to the GT Nexus times one more time, actually back in the days, a lot of focus and investment went into the back end as opposed to the front end. That took a long time until we realized that the, the front end, the, the way the, the, the actual end user interacts with the system is also very, very important. That's super that sort of, important. Yeah. And that came late in the, in the evolution, I have to admit. That was, a, I think it's a broader, it was part of a broader trend that, you know, our, our consumer habits started to bleed into our, yeah. you know, kind of business lives. Like we expected the system that we interact with on a daily basis to be as easy to use as a, as an iPhone. And, and so it was, I mean, you can't attribute it to Flexport alone. They sort of ri- rode that wave and yeah. realized early on that there was an opening. Um, and, and I think, but I think what you've seen now is they the last couple of years, they've been much more focused on, on that operational back end to power, to power, to make that front end much more powerful. And so that's going to be, but that's, that's a lot. What what I was talking about that, that backlash kind of in terms of investment is, is really been, uh, there's a lot of companies that are focused on that back end now. So that's very interesting. Interesting point, because I I, I won't name names of companies now, but there, there used to be companies that had, you know, would show up at, at trade shows with like, gigantic displays and screens of the most beautiful maps and everything. I think I know who you're talking well, about. They're, they're I, sort of like a, I, yeah, no, I, <laughs> I know what you mean though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that was the, the opposite phenomenon where this was so impressive on the outside where people were like, oh my God, this is all possible. But then you look behind the curtain and let's just say it wasn't as, you know, it Fell wasn't as, as um, elaborate and as sophisticated as what you see on the front end. <laughs> What's going on in the yep. back end? You know, let's just leave yep. it at that. But I, I know we're, <laughs> you're nodding, so I know um, what phenomenon we're talking about. Yeah, without getting too political. <laughs> no, 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 that's fine. It, mm. What's done is done. We, we look forward now. There's so much interesting stuff going on. It's it's important to look forward, right? Yeah, so. but I I really appreciate someone having like like a buddy to to jam and to sort of riff on these on these um, things without thinking about consequences. We we can talk about whatever we want to. It's fair. It's a fair assessment. It's a fair. It's our it's our opinions. You know, people can take it or leave it for for. What it's worth so right yeah this is this is this is awesome i really appreciate it. maybe um we'll we'll come back and do more of these next time around in a couple of months or whenever you come back and present some more um happy to um, I would, happy to accommodate would and, love to yeah i want to see how the um how the audience um appreciates a sort of straight talk around these things um i i really had fun this was this was good stuff eric thanks thanks for taking your time this was fantastic i really enjoyed it we have to do this again one time yeah 
I appreciate it, Boris. Really, it was great to chat with you and uh, and uh, look forward to, to coming back someday if uh, if I'm lucky enough to be invited back. So Absolutely, um, absolutely. I can yeah. already extend that, in, that um, invitation now. So. <laughs> yeah, just a matter cool. of time. Cool. Thanks, buddy. Take care. Until next time. Thanks, Boris. All right. That was the Logistics Drive podcast episode with Eric Johnson of the Journal of Commerce. I hope you had as much fun as I did. And uh, by the way, I do apologize for some of the background noise that was going on there in a few places. And uh, I assure you, that wasn't Eric banging his head against the wall there. I think there was just some some maintenance going on in this building. But I, I, I hope you didn't find that too distracting. In any case, if you want Eric to come back onto the show for more of these conversations with me about LogTech, let us know and we'll make it happen. You'll find both of us on LinkedIn. Just ping us there. And don't forget to follow or subscribe to the Logistics Tribe podcast so you don't miss any of the future episodes. I'm Boris Felgendreer. Until next time.